0: You're listening to The Wicked Library. <laughs> Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. Hello, listener. Welcome to the Gaslight Collective. I am the Collector. Come along now. Let me show you my growing collection of audio delights. Ah, here we are. You'll notice that every story in my collection is disturbing, dark, or simply compelling personal, fictional and somewhere in between yes go on, pick one all oh, the shorter tickle your fancy in one way or another ah that's a good one you've chosen the Wicked Library hmm, with our good friend the Librarian now sit back Dim the lights and let's begin.
1: We will make you believe.
2: Welcome to episode number seven twenty two of the Wicked Library. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to our new Patreon supporters. Since our last episode, we've gotten support from Tia Grimes, Derek Bentley, and Ellie Huffstetler. And if I've mispronounced any of your names, I apologize, as I probably did. Our patrons get a completely ad-free show and other great rewards. Plus, they help keep the show coming for all of you. A wicked amount of time and love goes into making the show, So your support lets us know you appreciate the effort. Thank you. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. And if you support the show at the $5 a month and above level, you can hear an extra story each month before everyone else. Episode number 721, our last episode was our wicked summer anthology, which featured a collection of the bonus stories from Patreon. A big thank you to everyone involved for letting us share their work with you. We got a ton of amazing feedback on the anthology episode, so we'll have another one for you this October. Of course, you don't have to wait that long. See our Patreon page to find out how to hear them sooner. If you enjoy the interviews at the end of the show, check out the Ninth Story podcast with Jeanette and Alexander for more interviews and discussions with storytellers of all types. You can find them at podcast.ninthstory.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out our other popular horror-themed podcast, The Lift, at victoriaslift.com. For even more great shows, you can visit society-13.com. Finally, a big thank you to those who took the time to rate and review us on iTunes. We had three great reviews since the last show, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and supporting our contributors. Now, without further ado, let's get wicked. Well, here we are again. The
0: warning at the beginning of the show. I'm getting a little tired of having to warn you people. I mean, the name of the show is The Wicked Library, for God's sakes. It's not the Sweet Pickles Library. Listener discretion is advised. If you're scared easily, good. (laughs) Seriously though, bugger off if you can't take scary stuff. We're very scary here. Boom. seat and relax I am your library there's nothing to be afraid of yet hold on to yourselves whirls and ghouls this is going to be a dark ride we'll leave the lights on for now no talking it's story time at the wicked library <laughs>
2: little indians written by patrick moody narrated and performed by addison peacock
3: celia's new friends loved to sing she could still remember the first time she heard them out behind the old stable it was late afternoon and the sun was just beginning to dip beneath the wall of willow trees that lined the gravel drive she remembered the excitement she felt drawn to the sound like a moth to lamplight. She remembered the dampness of the grass beneath her feet, the nervousness growing and flitting in her tummy like ice-covered butterflies as she spied them around the corner. For the whole week, Celia had been exploring the yard. Her new house had a big one, and for the time being, it was all hers. Outside was good. There was a lot to do. She didn't like being inside. It made her antsy. She didn't like her new house. It was old and smelled like musty paint and mothballs. She didn't like the way the wallpaper peeled like the skin of an old banana or the strange hum of the rusted radiators that made the floors go click, creak, click, creak. It sounded alive, moaning and groaning like a sick person. And it was always worse at night. She didn't like how big all the rooms were, how empty and hollow they felt, Or the old dusty paintings that lined the walls. Pictures of long dead people in strange clothes and eyes that looked angry. Nothing seemed right. Half the lights didn't work. And the ones that did would spark and sizzle if you flicked the switches too fast. Even the water in the tub came out reddish brown. And the kitchen didn't have a refrigerator. Celia was actually getting tired of eating pizza and Chinese delivery every night. All the soda was giving her tummy aches. Mommy and Daddy had bought the house so they could flip it, though she wasn't quite sure what that meant. First, she thought they were going to live there forever, but Daddy said it was only temporary. Him and Mommy wanted to fix it up, and once they scraped and hammered and painted enough, some other family was going to move in. Celia wished they were that other family. It'd be nice to live in a house that wasn't falling apart. She watched Daddy up on the scaffolding on the front porch, working the paint roller up and down the giant columns. He told her that it was a special kind of house. A plantation. Celia repeated the word over and over until it got all jumbled and didn't make sense anymore. It was like a mansion, he said, only a bit different. One lucky family lived in it, but there were a lot of other families who worked for them. Celia thought that sounded nice, but Daddy said it was a very, very bad thing and that she'd learn about it in school. Celia just nodded. As she watched him slop on the fresh paint, she heard a sweet lilt of voices in the distance. The sound carried across the breeze, soft and gentle as a sparrow's song. Celia skipped along down the drive, following it to the stable. It was an old, run-down thing, the wood half-rotted and covered in thick, prickly moss. She stopped and kept perfectly still, straining her ears, the voices swelled. Children's voices. Celia crept over to the side of the stable, making sure to keep low and quiet. She peered around the corner and saw them a small group of kids, hands interlocked, slowly moving in a circle. She'd never heard that song before. It sounded old, like a grandmother's nursery rhyme. She watched the smiles on their faces, the warmth in their eyes as they slowly spun like a nine-headed top. Snap. She gasped as her foot landed on the dried twig. The voices all paused as one, and the only sounds Celia heard were the crickets in the trees and the beating of her own heart. She kept her eyes trained on her feet. Someone's there, one of the boys said. It's a girl, another chimed. I saw her. She was watching us, a third piped up. Celia closed her eyes. She didn't want to be caught spying. Making new friends was hard enough, and she didn't want to get a bad reputation. Mommy said those weren't good for little girls to have. It's okay, the first voice called. You can come out if you want. We won't bite, another chirped. Celia gathered herself, taking a deep breath before marching out around the corner. She found the children still standing in a circle. They were all smiling. I... I heard you singing, she managed. And I... I... One of the girls broke away from the circle, her pale dress billowing slightly in the breeze. It's all right, she giggled. We were a bit loud. I'm glad you found us. Celia let out a deep sigh of relief. She didn't want them to be mad. There was something about the way they spoke, something about the way they dressed, that made her want them to like her. Though she couldn't put her finger on it, there was energy around them. Some invisible aura, as if they were angels or living dolls sprinkled with fairy dust. The girl pointed to the house in the distance. You live there? Celia looked over her shoulder. The plantation seemed so far away. She could still see daddy with the paint, though he was only a speck. I, I only moved in last week, she sputtered. But we're not staying very long. One of the girls pouted. Oh no, that's a shame, another said. She seems nice, one boy said to another. Celia felt her cheeks redden, trying in vain to stop herself. She hated when she blushed. You have very nice voices, she said. Thank you, the tallest girl replied. We do like to sing, sometimes. Old songs that our friend teaches us. It's one of our favorites, the smallest boy added. Though it's not as fun as swinging, A second put in, Celia's heart fluttered when she gazed at the boy who spoke. He was so handsome that her knees suddenly went lax, as if they'd been sculpted with melted butter. He smiled as their eyes met. Perhaps you can swing with us sometime. Swing? Oh, the first girl said, there's so many great places to swing around here. The handsome boy shyly dug his shoe into the grass. We can show you how to do it. The right way if you want, that is." Celia thought back to the playground at her old school. Aside from her friends, that was the thing she missed most. Whole afternoons would be spent on the swing set, and Celia would pump her legs till her thighs felt like they were on fire, forcing herself up higher, 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 until she nearly swung up above the bars. She could still remember the sound of the air whooshing in her ears when she'd lean back and close her eyes, clutching on tight to the creaky metal chains. When she'd get high enough, she'd hold her breath and count down from ten before launching herself off the rubber seat, flying through the air like a bird, crying out in joy as her tummy leapt up into her throat and the green grass came up fast from below. Maybe these new kids had their own playground somewhere, some magical place where the swing sets weren't quite as rusty. "'I'd like that very much,' she said, cheeks burning as the boy smiled. "'Good.' Before Celia could ask where their playground was, she heard Daddy's voice calling in the distance. She looked to the house, then back at the children, fighting the urge to pretend like she didn't hear him. I have to go, she said. It was almost painful to take those first few steps away from them. We'll be back tomorrow. Will I find you here? Maybe. Follow the song. Celia nodded before she turned and ran back to the house. Dinner was takeout again. Celia hovered over her white cardboard box, delicately prodding the chunks of lamb drowned in brown curry sludge, scrunching up her face as the spicy scent stung her nose. Daddy, can you make me a swing? Her father looked up from his food. A swing? He paused for a moment as he finished chewing. Sure. He said.
2: I have the perfect place for it, too.
3: Celia smiled, and as she went to bed that night, her dreams were filled with playgrounds and children's songs. The next morning, she found Daddy out by the old sycamore tree next to the drive, looking up at the gnarled, thick branches that reached out into the sky like giant's arms. A thick rope hung from the lowest one, corded and wide as Celia's wrist. Daddy gave it a good tug, testing the strength of the branch before he turned to her, patting the piece of wood he'd set into the bottom as her seat.
2: How's this?
3: Celia was so happy, she didn't know what to say. Daddy stepped aside as she hoisted herself up onto the wood. Holding onto the rope as she settled herself. Her feet dangled off the ground as she balanced and looked up to the branches above, up into the empty spaces between the leaves where blue sky poked through like ocean water. She swung all morning and into the afternoon, sailing up to the boughs of the sycamore, feeling that same familiar burn in her thighs as she propelled herself up and down, forward and back again. She leaned back on the swing, eyes still closed and pretended that she was a shooting star, falling through space, traveling at the speed of light as she skipped across galaxies like a stone across a calm, still lake. She passed by Jupiter, heading full speed towards Saturn when a voice cut through the darkness and pulled her back to Earth. That's not how you swing. Celia opened her eyes and found the children standing in a ring around the sycamore. One of the girls stepped forward and grabbed a hold of the rope, helping to steady it. Celia caught her breath as she settled to a stop. What do you mean? She asked. Again, the girl shrugged. There's a better way to swing than that. Once you try it, you'll never want to do anything else. Celia shimmied herself off of the rope swing, dusting off her jeans before stretching her sore legs. Come on, the girl said, beckoning her forth with the wave of her arm. We'll show you the best place to swing. A secret place. Our place. Celia looked around at the smiling faces. One was missing. The handsome boy. She looked around to the other eight. One of them noticed and gave a sly grin. Henry's there already. He's with the moss man. Celia frowned. The moss man? Who's that? Oh, the boy said with a wistful look in his eye. The moss man showed us how to swing. And he teaches the songs. He's very friendly. "'Another said. "'Come on,' one of the girls cooed. "'Let's go meet him. "'I'm sure he'll like you.' "'Celia looked up to the sky and watched as the red sun dipped below the trees. "'It'd be nighttime soon. "'Mommy and Daddy said she couldn't be out after nighttime. "'I... "'I can't. "'Right now,' the children frowned. "'No,' the girl said. "'That's a shame. "'The moss man would really love you, I can tell. "'You have kind eyes.' Thank you, Celia managed, unsure of what to say. She stepped forward and took Celia's hand. It was so warm. That's all right, she whispered. Tell you what, since you can't come with us, how about we send him to meet you? Celia felt the butterflies rumble in her tummy. Here? The girl nodded. It's simple, she said. Do you have a candle? Celia racked her brain mommy had a bunch they were wrapped up in boxes in the basement i think so the girl's eyes brightened perfect take one and put it in your bedroom window before you go to bed that way the moss man will know which room is yours before celia could respond the girl turned and skipped away the other children followed suit marching off into the woods like a row of ducklings Celia could hear their voices fade into the trees as they sang, One little, two little, three little Indians. She did as the girl said, though she wasn't sure why. There were so many questions she wanted to ask. Even as she lit the candle and set it on the windowsill, she wasn't quite sure if she wanted the moss man to come. What was a moss man, anyway? Celia closed her eyes and tried to picture it. And when she did, all she could see was a creature with a big green beard, with hands like tree branches and clothes made out of leaves. Maybe the moss man was just a silly name and he wasn't strange at all. If they liked him so much, he couldn't be that bad. Maybe he was like the tooth fairy or Santa. Celia got in bed, pulling the covers up around her face as she watched the candle burn in the window. The soft orange flame danced in the breeze, casting a hazy, pale light across the smudged glass. How long would it take? How would he even get in? Daddy always made sure to lock the door before he and Mommy went up to bed. Celia thought about sneaking down and opening it, but the old wooden floors were so loud she was sure they'd wake up. And if she got caught, she wouldn't even be able to explain herself. Mommy would get worried, and Daddy would just say it was her imagination. According to him, Celia had a big one. But that was okay. Kids were supposed to have those. She waited for another hour, watching the flame flicker in the dark until her eyelids grew heavy and she fell into a deep, dreamless sleep. The smell woke her first. Celia's nose flooded with the scent of dirt and mulch, sending her springing up from beneath the covers. She searched around the room, eyes adjusting to the dim light of the candle. It smelled like the woods. She brought her fingers up to her nose and gave them a sniff. Her nails stank like she'd been digging through weeds. But she hadn't. A cold, icy sting settled in her tummy. Then she heard it. The front door opened, hinges squealing, echoing up the staircase and down the hall. Celia pulled her knees up to her chest and scooted farther onto the bed until her shoulders hit the headboard. She thought about running to Mommy and Daddy's room. But she couldn't. They wouldn't understand. She was a big girl. That's what Daddy had told her the last time she went to them after a nightmare. Big girls shouldn't be afraid of nightmares. But this was real. Footsteps now. They came slow. Moaning up the stairs. One after another. Celia's heart was beating so fast she feared it would burst out of her chest. She pressed her ear to the wall. Thump. Creak. It was walking by the bathroom. Thump. Creak. Past Mommy and Daddy's room. Thump. Creak. By the linen closet. Thump. Thump. Creak. Celia's room. The smell grew even stronger. Celia tried to wipe her nose and breathe out of her mouth, but it was no use. She couldn't escape the stink of soil and leaves, twigs and mud, roots and bark and stone, mold and rot. When the last footstep faded, she sprang off the bed and sprinted to the door as silently as she could, twisting the lock shut with a snap. Silence. She slowly backed away, hiding herself behind an unpacked box of clothes by the closet. Click. She could see the door handle moving in the light of the candle, jiggling soft at first, then harder. Bang! 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 She gasped as the pounds grew frantic, the sound booming in her ears until her head hurt. Please, she whispered, please come away. A tear rolled down her cheek and into her mouth, cold and salty. The pounding eased. The pounding ceased. Breathing now, loud, behind the door. Rattling, heavy breaths, deep and ragged. The floor shook as they rose and fell. Celia curled herself up in a ball. Something bad was outside that door. Something nasty. Something mean. She waited all night, scared to move a muscle until the candle burned down to the last of its wick and the sun began to rise. The breaths stopped Then She could hear the thumping and creaking down the hallway as the footsteps retreated back through the house. The jiggle and slam of the front door. The smell faded. Still, she waited. Another hour, she told herself. Then she'd get up. Then it'd be safe. Slowly, she moved to the door, hands shaking as she went to undo the lock. She pulled it open, holding her breath before poking her head out into the hallway. Everywhere, she saw footprints. Big footprints. Even bigger than Daddy's work boots. They went from her door all the way down the hall and down the stairs. Footprints, made of moss. The children were waiting for her when she went outside to the rope swing. The boy was there too. Henry. He said his name was Henry. Celia felt the butterflies rumble in her tummy as he walked over to her. Leaning up against the swing. You didn't let him in, he said sadly. The moss man wasn't happy. Celia wanted to tell him how scared she'd been, how frightening the sounds were, and the smell that made her sick to her stomach. But she didn't want him to think she was afraid. Tell him I'm sorry. I didn't mean for it to go like that. Honest. He smiled. You can tell him yourself. He held out his hand, urging her to take it. Come with me. Celia looked down at the hand. She wanted so badly to hold it. To feel how warm it was. To see him smile. He's much friendlier in the daytime, he said. The other children nodded in agreement. Celia wasn't sure, yet she wanted to make them happy. She took his hand. They marched, single file, into the woods. Celia looked up at the trees. They grew larger the farther they walked. Their branches reached out and blocked the sun, shrouding the forest floor in creeping darkness. It was a strange feeling, like walking in a basement with broken lights. Again they sang. It was the same tune Celia had heard before, but the words were different.
1: And fine.
3: Celia didn't like their new song. It made her feel uneasy. She didn't like how mean it was, and how their faces were still lit up even though the words weren't nice. She tried to speak up, but something made her voice catch in her throat like she'd swallowed a golf ball. She tugged on Henry's sleeve. He looked over his shoulder and just smiled. Then gave her hand a little squeeze. Celia followed, tripping over the roots and broken twigs, listening as they sang even louder.
1: Five, Five little Indians a so door. door, one, one tumbled off and then there were four. Four, four little Indians up a street. One, one got, got fuddled and then there were three. Three, three. three. three little Indians out a canoe, one tumbled off up and then there were two. two. One shot the other, and then there
3: was one. The song ended as they entered a small clearing. Celia looked around at the mossy earthen floor, dappled in pale sunlight. The deep green vines wrapped through the rocks like serpents. In the center stood an oak tree. It was the biggest one she'd ever seen. The roots rose up from the moss like the tentacles of some giant, subterranean beast. The trunk was so wide, she didn't even think all ten of them could wrap their arms around it. Its branches were knobby and gnarled, the bark gray and sick-looking, like a lumbering old man with a thick, mossy beard. "'He's here!' Henry whispered. He let go of her hand. Celia watched as the children faded into the glen. Some of them scrambled up the limbs of the tree, Others disappeared behind the brambles and thickets. Some sat down on the mossy outcroppings of rocks, permanent smiles etched on their faces, like angels, she thought, or living dolls, sprinkled with fairy dust. The moss? The the moss man, she said, voice trembling. Oh yes, Henry said. He jumped and grabbed a hold of the lowest branch of the oak. "'pulling himself up with the grace of an acrobat. "'He sat down, knobby knees dangling over the edge. "'Celia gasped when she saw his eyes, "'black eyes, soulless eyes. "'They stared deep into her own, "'though they seemed to be looking everywhere and nowhere at once. "'The other children appeared on the limbs of the great oak, "'each with beady black eyes.' still smiling, watching like a murder of crows. He's waking up, one of them said. His voice was hollow, rattling like a whisper on the wind. This is his home, another spat, where he brings us to swing. He wants us to teach you. Celia would never forget that clearing in the woods, the hazy sunlight beating off the moss the limbs of that tree rising like a monster from the pits of her darkest nightmares. She would never forget the fear she felt as the black-eyed children watched her from the branches, or the sight of the thing that reared its shadowy head from behind the trunk of the oak. Even as she turned and ran back to the house, pumping her legs as fast as they could carry her, she knew she'd never forget the sound of their voices and words of that song. She'd never forget the smell of those woods, the darkness of that forest floor, the children's faces, the ropes in their hands, nodded.
0: not that easy to leave the Wicked Library, there's still an interview with the author. But first, this.
2: Hey there, do you like Legends, Myths, and Whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to Legends, legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's... Zombie skin. So foreign to your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become... The Contamination... Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happened, The Antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy The Antidote. Become human again. Get yours today.
4: So, Patrick, welcome to The Time Warp again (laughs) and the Wicked Library
5: (laughs) thank you for having me
4: to our listeners we have traveled back in time in fact because we've already recorded this once (laughs) I'm totally breaking (laughs) the fourth wall there Um, but you're going to get an even better interview because now I know more about Patrick Moody our author today
5: Yeah. Yeah. There there, there was a glitch. There was a glitch in the matrix, and and, uh, we're back here.
4: (laughs) And uh, since we have that opportunity for a glitch, I can now remember to say, "Hey, this voice that you're listening to is Jeanette Andromeda." Whoa.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It's unbelievable.
4: It's like we practiced this or something. (laughs) (laughs) So. This is your first episode on the Wicked Library, is it not?
5: It is, and I'm so well, excited because I've been a long time listener.
4: When did you first start listening to the Wicked Library?
5: Um, about a year ago. I was on a kick of audio dramas, um, and I, I was just kind of gobbling up everything. And there are a lot of them, and uh, it took me a while to kind of like weed through uh the good ones and the bad ones and the wicked library is one of the good ones um one of the best ones i would say and uh yeah so the wicked library is is i i would say my top five podcast rotations um i'm always listening to an episode back episodes the new ones everything
4: i love it are you sad that some things are now locked away in the archives
5: i am yeah let's get let's let's break those out of the archives
4: Hey, uh, Librarian, can we get a key to that? Yes. <laughs> I'm sure he's I will, gonna I throw will... things at us now.
5: Yeah. The Librarian doesn't seem like he'd be, uh, easy to, uh, you know, reckon with, uh.
4: Yeah, so... I don't think you can bribe him much. <laughs> yeah,
5: I know. He doesn't seem like the most open fella.
4: No, but he's very jovial.
5: <laughs> he really is. I do I do always smile when his voice appears. I'm like, oh I know you too. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm safe. I'm home. The librarian's
4: talking. Everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. It may be covered in blood, but it's gonna be okay.
5: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
4: So Patrick, ten little Indians. Hmm. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Last time I had such a great segue, and now I cannot remember for the life yeah. of me what it was. It was something like, oh, you know, for the first time ever, I submitted a story and hey, got got <laughs> accepted. And it was because, dear listeners, he wrote in a different voice than what he normally does. And I wanted to talk about how your short stories are darker than your normal novel type things. And then we'll talk about the novel type things. But... sure. What yes. did you tap into when you were starting to write Ten Little Indians?
5: Um, well, I, I started to tap into um, basically the freedom that I I always feel when I'm writing short stories is, is you know, I could do whatever I want, because my novels are, are strictly kind of middle grade or young adult, um, but with short stories I could kind of go anywhere. And uh, with Ten Little Indians I, I finally decided to... Let, uh, blend uh, the two. I, I I figured let's let's try to write a really terrifying, scary, uh, almost adult short story, but through the eyes of a kid, um, and that's kind of how that was born. Just a little uh, a little blending of of genres.
4: I thought it worked really well, and and in particular because it was kids. Because kids have this, like, view of the world where something that's scary and supernatural can just exist. You don't have to doubt it. You can just, like, be terrified.
5: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah. There, there, There is absolutely no doubting. <laughs> if, you, if you think something is under your bed, if you think that that house is haunted or that little old lady is actually a witch or, <laughs> you know that old man is a is a is a is actually a murderer um then uh then yeah then that's that's the truth and that's what they are and there's nobody or nothing can uh can uh, sway you from that opinion <laughs> little kids are are all absolutes <laughs> and uh that's why they're so fun to write the, uh, the terror is real, the monsters are real, and uh, they are coming to get you, and it will be horrible, and it will happen, and your parents will not save you.
4: They won't. They can't, because they're weaker they than the monsters. Yeah. Isn't that a scary thing when you realize as a kid that your parents aren't the most powerful thing in the world?
5: I Yes, and I think that's a really, like, honestly, well, to, to get, like, really serious <laughs> is when when you're a little kid and you realize your parents are just people. Like that's a really, uh, I think, a, a really strange um, formative moment yeah. in a, in any little kid's life when, when your parents are not these larger than life uh, heroes when they when when you finally realize they're just people. It's um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's in, it's interesting and it's kind of uh, it's it's almost a little disheartening when you're a kid. <laughs> You're like, oh, my dad's just a businessman. Like,
4: <laughs> He's not Superman. He's a businessman. Yeah. <laughs> That's why he wears his tie.
5: Yes. I thought he just liked to look nice.
4: <laughs> so through using these younger characters, you had... One thing I liked about this was that you used them to really build this sense of dread throughout the story. And mm-hmm. as you were building that? Were there certain things that you found yourself focusing on to, like, kind of make that happen the way it did?
5: Um, it, it, th- this one was really tricky, um, because I wanted to build dread, but at the same time I wanted it to I, I wanted it to build dread but also, uh, inflame, uh, Celia's, uh, curiosity. So it had to be very kind of like exciting or intoxicating. Um, you know, when the kids ask her, you know, if they want, you know, when, when they finally accept her and uh, ask her if she wants to learn how to swing and all that, that was a, you know, obviously it's, it's getting more and more kind of grim. Um, you know that as a reader, um, but Celia, it's like, oh yes, they're finally accepting me And now I get to be in the, uh, you know I- I'm-, I'm-, I'm being accepted as one of the gang But it's all just, uh, it- it's leading down a dark, dark, dark road
4: And that dark, dark, dark road Where did that start for you? Where did the story start?
5: Um, this started when uh, about six years ago I was uh, visiting a buddy who moved from Connecticut down to South Carolina. Um, he lived in Charleston, uh, but we took one day to do this uh, plantation tour. And uh, it was the first time for me as a, as a northern uh, Yankee. That I ever got to see a uh, an actual plantation, like a, a preserved one, that one one that had been standing there since uh, you know since the Civil War, and uh, I was just floored by uh, the beauty of it. I was just like, yeah, okay, like <laughs> this is like. Um, I I was talking to one of my professors uh, back in college, and he had a picture of a plantation. Um, hanging up somewhere in his office, and he taught um, American history. And he was saying that, like, you know, you can look at this picture, uh, put everything else out of your mind, and you can understand a little bit why the South um, kind of, like, fought for what they had. Because, like, if you had this, you would fight for it, right? And uh, You know, and even without the weight of history and all the evils that that went into it i i could look at that picture and see that house and like this massive estate with these perfectly uh tended grounds and just god it it was just so picturesque i was like yeah i could kind of see why they'd want to hang on to that um so when i was actually there at the plantation um walking through the gardens and and walking through just the uh you know, the yards and everything. It was just, and it went on for acres and acres and everything was just so, um, meticulously, uh, um, maintained. Uh, and it was just, it was beautiful. And I was just kind of like, I I was, I was absolutely floored. And I, 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 literally was like walking in history. Um, but of course the, 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 the sense of, of the, the weight of history was heavy on my shoulders as I walked through it and uh, you know the evils that, that perpetuated this lifestyle were uh, like inescapable really um, so I always uh, I always knew that I wanted to write a story um, that had to do with a plantation and the evils of slavery and um, just uh yeah I just I, I, I always knew that it was just the perfect setting for some to, to set something up that would that would go awry <laughs> in, the, in the worst way possible.
4: So you had this place that you wanted to experience. When did the characters of the story kind of find their way into this location in your mind?
5: Um, they kind of uh, started to formulate after I got the song Ten Little Indians Stuck in my head. Um, which came absolutely out of nowhere, just totally an ear bug, uh, just like any like pop song that you just can't get out. Um, so I was like, one, little, two, little, da, 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 and then I, it, for like a day straight, and I was driving everyone around like crazy, they were like, they were like, why are you singing this song? <laughs> it's like, what, you guys don't like it? Da, 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 da. <laughs> And um, so I was like, "Oh, Ten Little Indians, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty neat song and it's extremely catchy. Um, and then I went uh, back one day and uh, just kind of did some research on it and found the actual lyrics for it, which are like pretty, pretty graphic and pretty nasty. And then I found out that the song was a, uh, a song written in 1868 by this guy Septimus Winner who was a, uh, a big-time minstrel show performer. So I had, um, you know, I had my location uh, seeped in evil, and then I had my song seeped in <laughs> a very similar evil. And I was like, well, how can I combine these two? Uh, so I just, um, and I had a vision of this girl, of a little girl, kind of uh, just coming upon this scene of these, uh, these little kids uh singing that song. And um that's just kind of how it started. Uh and then it kind of went from there.
4: So the really scary part of that song where they're leading her deeper into the woods, that's the original song.
5: That's the original song, yeah. And uh <laughs> so it it, get, it it gets even worse because Indians wasn't actually the um <laughs> the noun. Yeah oh, it was Oh no it was a minstrel show, so you can imagine um, it was ten little, you know, it was very bad.
4: I never put that together, ever!
5: Yes, yeah, and it was actually the, um, uh, and then They Were None by Agatha Christie. Her original title was Ten Little... I'm not gonna wow. say it.
4: Yeah, we because, don't need yeah. to. We all we don't can need... use our imagination.
5: We sure can.
4: Slur <laughs> so. for slaves.
5: Y- yes. Wow.
4: <laughs> My god. Yeah.
5: So I was like, okay, I've I've hit on something here. <laughs> yeah. And uh and also I think um you know, it's funny from like a personal like vanity standpoint. I was like 10 little Indians. That's like a great name for a short story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's just like aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> Um, so it, uh, yeah, so it all, it all kind of worked out and it was, uh, it, it gave me a lot of, of fodder to work with. Um, yeah. Wow.
4: Yeah. Knowing the history of that song just like changed yeah. all of this in my head.
5: <laughs> yeah. It's very, yeah, it's very nasty.
4: Yeah. Wow. And I, I mean, it was bad before because I was imagining, you know, first person, First Nation people as the target for this, but some, I just somehow knowing the true history of that story just makes it even even worse. Though right. anyway hanging from their neck is bad. Yeah, that's uh, true.
5: Yeah, I mean in, the the word Indians is is bad enough, but uh, yeah. When you, when, you, when you get to, yeah, what it actually is, it's uh, oh my god, okay.
4: Even, even worse somehow.
5: Even worse. So wow. uh, yeah, I said there's enough uh, there's enough, uh, you know, there's enough evil there to, uh, to come up with something. And, and, um, and honestly, I, I wanted to, um, we didn't bring this up in the last one, but, uh, my, 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 short stories, I've always kind of been, I've always kind of played it safe when it comes to the, um, antagonists of my stories. I've, uh, you know, done my version of, like, the werewolf myth. I've done vampires, zombies, uh... You know, aliens, like the, the, you know, the the your um your basic uh villains in a horror novel or a horror story. Um, so this one I really wanted to like kind of make my own mythology and make my own boogeyman. Um, so I think that um. I think that Ten Little Indians really allowed me to uh, explore a little bit. And uh kind of formulate my own sort of monster um in the Moss Man.
4: I think you I think you really made something interesting because it felt like something that could it could be real. You know, based in this kind of You pulled yeah, a Washington I... Irving, sir. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <That> <laughs> I was is, thinking about uh, it. I'm like,
4: that's that's just very sleepy hollow. Like you took a real place, you took a real part of our history and built something that just was tied enough to that area that it you know, it could be real. Maybe there is a moss man. And you didn't spend a lot of time like really fleshing him out, which no. I thought was good. It was very lovecrafty in that way, so like my imagination made him.
5: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the, the the whole Lovecraftian thing was very, uh, I, 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 I had that, um, I mean, that, that that was kind of set from the beginning that I was going to make this kind of very, uh, very ambiguous and very, um, you know, you don't know what's, you, you know, see, you're exper- experiencing it through Celia, but you don't know what's going on because she doesn't know what's going on and uh the moss man is he real they keep talking about him you know he the 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 scene where he actually does come to her house and it's just so um the god it it actually (laughs) like really terrifying it it, you know it gives me it, it gives me chills just thinking about it now because i um I, I didn't really explore this in the story itself, but I had it in my head that Celia was from kind of a a more, um, uh, she was from like a city and being in the country was kind of alien to her. So when the moss man does come and she smells that kind of like that primal funk of the forest and she smells the the dead grass and the clay and the stones and the you know everything else it's it's like it's so jarring to her because it's such a it's such an alien uh sensation and uh having a creature that that's from the earth uh would really uh just kind of like throw her through a loop and just be absolutely terrifying but i I hope
4: (laughs) you know it's funny that you mentioned that you had imagined that she came from a city background because i don't know how but that was in my head as well when i read this story <laughs> so, oh she's from a city and now she's out in, out in the great wild u.s what countryside so, uh, the, there we yeah. go <laughs> <I was laughs> so struggling for words well
5: that's yeah that, that's that's awesome i'm so happy that you that you felt that because that's that's really what I was going for but I I, I don't know how well I did at establishing that but I'm uh, but I'm glad that that's what you came away with it from yeah.
4: now 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 I want to reread it and figure out like why did I have that thought because it was definitely in there and it was very clear somehow yeah but you didn't like specifically say it mm, no reread <laughs> <laughs>
5: I think you'll find the whole. I think you'll find the whole story is me not specifically saying anything.
4: Well, apparently you implied things really well.
5: I I, I imply a hell of a lot, and I don't show a lot. That that was kind of my um my mindset for this whole story because a lot of times in my short stories I do show a lot. Um, but for this one, um, for whatever reason that was kind of, uh, tampered and I was just kind of like, well, let's, let's let kind of ambiguity rule here and let's, uh, um, let's just kind of suggest things, um, which, uh, which I think works because I, I, I would have loved to actually have shown the moss Man, uh, but I think that the brief glimpse that you get of him, um... I'm I, I'm I'm searching for the actual words of when he does appear. I think it's when when she sees the thing rear its shadowy head from behind the trunk. I I, I think that's enough to give you, you know,
1: Gives a,
5: you just it, enough. It, it's kind of, uh, you know, picture what you will, and it's it'll be just as terrifying for her as it was for you.
4: Nightmare fuel. <laughs> yeah,
5: exactly. Some Straight some from your own. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some definite definite nightmare fuel. <laughs> so, I'm, yeah. I'm
4: actually kind of glad we uh, had to re-record this, because there are some interesting things there that we didn't talk about before. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. However, one thing we did talk about before that was very interesting is your new book that's coming out from Sky Pony Press, which is The Gravedigger's <laughs> Son.
5: The Gravedigger's Son. Everybody run out and get it.
4: When is it coming uh, out? You said August, right?
5: It's coming out August 1st, yep.
4: August 1st, 2017. If you are listening to this in the future, you can go out and buy it right now! If yes. you're listening to this after the actual release of this podcast, you need to put it on your calendar and buy it later. Yeah,
5: <laughs> it, it, it'll still be there in, 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 in bookstores everywhere.
4: That's awesome. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the Gravedigger Sun?
5: Sure. Um, the story follows Ian Fosser, who is 11 years old, and he is born into this family of gravediggers. Um, in this world, gravediggers are, uh, blessed with this magical ability that allows them to resurrect and speak to the dead, and it's kind of their solemn duty to, um, fulfill the dead's request and, um you know, set past wrongs right and um, contact uh, family members who are still alive and uh, basically set everything right so that, that the dead can actually find peace in the beyond. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's, it's a family business that uh, the foster line has gone back thousands of years and Ian is the newest in this in this legion of gravediggers. Um, and he spends his nights reciting the digger's code and going over, memorizing, um, you know, every name on every tombstone in the graveyard That's, that, that goes on for miles and miles. And he's taught by his uh, 400-year-old undead tutor, Bertram, who is a uh, zombie blacksmith who, uh, who teaches him. And he's a, he's a curmudgeon, but he's very lovable. Um, but Ian doesn't want to be a gravedigger. He wants to break the cycle. He wants to be a healer and help the living, um, but circumstances, uh, with his friend Fiona, uh, who is, uh, very excited about Ian's abilities and, uh, has him basically wake up a corpse of a, of a child who, who died around their age, um, Ian tries to wake him up. Uh, nothing happens. He fails. Um, he's kind of bummed out about it, but not really because this isn't really what he wanted to do. Um, so he goes. He goes home and goes to sleep, and then uh, gets woken up in the middle of the night with a uh, with a skeleton uh, sitting on the foot of his bed, saying, "Hey, you woke me up. What's uh, what's going on?" and uh, <laughs> And uh, the corpse that he woke, woke up does not want to go back to rest and um, runs away and sets off this, uh, this, in, this entire chain of events that uh, can basically uh, uproot everything uh, Ian's family, the Fossers, the Gravediggers stand for and uh, can uh, possibly shift the balance between the living and the dead and it's up to Ian to set everything right. And he has to do it all before his dad gets home,
4: because he will
5: be in big, big trouble.
4: Guys, you don't want your dad to find out. You froze the dead and you didn't put him back to bed. <laughs> yeah,
5: exactly. That, that's thats like rule number one as a gravedigger.
4: So was there something in your particular past that kind of fed into writing the story?
5: There was. Um, the, uh, the street that I grew up on, I grew up in Trumbull, Connecticut. Um, I grew up on a dead-end street... Um, On one side of the street was my house Uh, across the street was my uh, my childhood buddy Bill his house and uh, behind his house was a uh, rock wall and Over that was a graveyard. So I basically grew up next to a graveyard and We used that graveyard as our playground as our you know as our um, you know base when we played army as our uh, at nighttime, uh, as our place when we played uh, manhunt with our flashlights, and uh, yeah, we spent like every every single day just playing in that graveyard, and uh, it was uh, it was really cool. It and it, and it I think it gave me a kind of a weird perspective on uh, on death and uh, all that kind of stuff because I always viewed graveyards as oh this is where you go to hang out and have fun. Um, so I always knew that I, I wanted to write a story that takes place in a graveyard, because um, I had the uh, I had the experience to back it up.
4: <laughs> you can draw from <laughs> real life, based yeah, on exactly. true events. <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: And many many of the characters are actually uh, names that I that I cobbled together from uh, from various tombstones when I was uh, I, I you know I always wrote stories and comic books when i was little and uh, to get kind of inspiration i would just kind of walk around the graveyard and say "Ooh, that's a cool name oh that's a cool last name and then i would kind of like combine them and write them down and do all kinds of stuff so yeah a lot of uh, a lot of characters in 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 the novel are actually um uh, real people
4: so anyone who reads this novel should definitely go to Trumple, Connecticut and see if they can figure out who the tombstones that inspired characters were.
5: <laughs> exactly. Make a, make a day out of it.
4: A little scavenger hunt. That'd be great. Yeah. Scavenger <laughs> hunt. <laughs> so while people are searching, where can they find you and your, more of your work, Patrick?
5: Um, I'm pretty busy on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at patmoody 2, number 2. Um, And I am currently building a website Which should be up by the time this comes out Which is patrickmoody.com
4: Cool, well everyone uh, Run on out and grab a copy of the Gravedigger's son Also go say hi to Patrick Moody And thank you for listening to the Wicked Library And thank you, Patrick For visiting us here And then time warping back to visit us again
5: (laughs) I, I love a good time warp Thank you for having me
4: Have a good night, everyone
2: Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, NinthStory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. All supporters get wicked fun rewards like bookmarks, access to our archives, bonus stories, and more. The more generous you are, the more wicked the rewards are. Season 7 of the Wicked Library is sponsored in part by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com, and of course in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Also, we're sponsored in part by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode Microphones. Find out more information about their great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E dot com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make this show sound so good. Complete credits and full show notes including links and information from today's episode. Can be found at theWickedLibrary.com forward slash seven two two. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page there. Until next time, go ahead, leave the lights on. Makes it easier for the Moss Man to know what room you're in. <laughs>